from KQED. KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. In his speech at the White House last night, the final night of the Republican National Convention, President Donald Trump warned that a vote for Joe Biden would demolish the American dream. This election will decide whether we save the American dream or whether we allow a socialist agenda to demolish our cherished destiny. Coming up, we'll get the main takeaways from the last day of the GOP gathering and talk about the latest political news, including the continued racial justice protests. That's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. My fellow Americans, tonight with a heart full of gratitude and boundless optimism, I profoundly accept this nomination for President of the United States. That was President Trump last night on the South Lawn of the White House. And in this hour, we'll recap the Republican National Convention, the continuing racial justice protests and other political news. Joining us is Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. Good morning, Marisa. Morning, Michael. Welcome. And let me also welcome Sean Walsh back to Forum, GOP political consultant, Principal Wilson Walsh, George Ross, and former advisor to Governor Pete Wilson. Welcome, Sean Walsh. Thank you, Michael. Good to have you both. Uh, Marisa, let me begin with you. Let's start with uh, the acceptance speech delivered last night, which was the culmination of the convention delivered by the president. Uh, We just heard a cut from it. It was delivered at the White House, the House of the People, which has caused a good deal of concern and pushback for using the White House as what some have characterized as a political prop. But I want to talk to you about what was accomplished by his speech. There was a lot in it about fear. Fear, it was a political speech. It was like in some ways a... Uh, a speech that really set out to instill in the American people and those who were listening a sense that if the Democrats take over, uh, there's going to be all kinds of radicalism, disorder, uh, and lawlessness. Is that going to give him any kind of a real bump that he needs to overcome essentially the mishandling of the coronavirus as that narrative has been characterized by the Democrats? I mean, it, that is the big question, right, Michael? And I think we don't really know, um, you know, there hasn't been enough time to show us polling. And obviously, it's harder this year as a reporter to get out and even get those anecdotal reactions because of the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, I think it, you know, the, it wasn't just Trump's speech that did that, right? The whole week was really framing this as the stark choice between this chaotic, dystopic future under Democrats, um, you know, and more an economic sort of rebirth under Trump. And it was interesting to me, um, sort of on two levels. One is that, you know, they, they often used images or um, invoked images of cities that are in protest, embroiled in protest now. Uh, saying this is the future. Well, Trump's the president now. So there was definitely, I think, some dissonance between what was being presented as the possibility of the future and what is actually happening with him as president. Um, and then, you know, I think that there was obviously, um, 
a, a, a through line through a lot of speakers um, that really harken back to the convention of 2016 in many ways when he was the outsider, when he wasn't the incumbent. And it seemed like what the president was really trying to do was almost try to take the best of both worlds, right? He's using the White House as this backdrop. He's really invoking the power that he already has, while at the same time um, trying to still position himself as not part of what he calls the swamp. Well, let's hear a cup of uh, a cut from the uh, president's speech last night where he was talking about the Biden record. This is clip four. We have spent the last four years reversing the damage Joe Biden inflicted over the last 47 years. Biden's record is a shameful roll call of the most catastrophic betrayals and blunders in our lifetime. He has spent his entire career on the wrong side of history. Well, Sean Walsh, that plays to the base. But again, the question is, uh, how many other voters, independents or undecideds can that bring in? Well, I have always been concerned about principally Republican, independent, conservative, Democrat women in suburbs because the election was so narrowly decided in the last election. But if you let's do a rewind pre-COVID, I think the president was going to coast into re-election as vulgar as many people thought he was. The economy was doing well. Um, the African-American and Latino uh, um, populations were doing very well economically. Some would say the best they've ever done. COVID hits. Uh, people question about how well the president has dealt with the COVID crisis, and then he's on his backside. But you now see these um, riots, looting, or however you want to define it in these various cities. And I think that the president has pivoted to a Nixon strategy from 1970 to 1972, which is the hard hat strategy. He's going to go after the quote unquote great silent majority. He's going to go after people who, even though many in the media thought with the civil rights movement, and the anti-Vietnam War movement were popular, they weren't popular with a lot of folks that do tend to keep quiet. And in what we call a cancel culture right now, where if you speak up, oftentimes you're shouted down. The question I have is, will a Nixon strategy of 72 work for a Trump in 2020? So we'll no, see. It's not a Nixon strategy. It reminds me of 1988 when Dukakis mm -hmm. was leading George H.W. Bush by about the same margin that now uh, the president is behind. And then suddenly Willie Horton came up from Lee Atwater and uh, there was a terrible fear instilled in the American people. And ultimately, George H.W. Bush won the election. Yeah, Michael, it's funny. Um, on Political Breakdown last night, we actually had Joe Rodota, who cut his teeth as an opposition researcher, uh, first in 84, but really in that 88 campaign. And, you know, I think um, I think there's a couple of questions to Sean's point is like, are those key suburban voters watching? We know that given the pandemic and the sort of um, strangeness of both conventions this year that they had to kind of adjust to the COVID-19 restrictions, although the Republicans did so le far less, right? We saw a crowd of 1,500, no shows distancing, no masks last night, really an attempt, I think, in a lot of the speakers to paint the COVID-19 crisis as behind us. Um, but, you know, I think the question is, are those people listening? Are they open to this message? Um, we know that Trump has a strong base, um, but that he does need those swing voters, as would Biden, to actually win. And, um, you know, it, it, I think there's, there's a lot of, like, sort of questions out there um, around what I mean, it, it's really dissonant, right? You have on one side the Republicans saying, 
we need law and order, there's chaos in the streets. And, and on the other side, Democrats saying we need law and order, there's chaos in the White House, essentially, that he has violated these norms. And so in a way, you could almost take a lot of what was said this week by Republicans. And if you just flipped who the sort of um, target was, it was similar in, in, in some ways to some of the things the Democrats said. Although I will say, I think the language was much more strident and sort of um, uh, scary. I mean, you know, for me with two young kids at home, I, I had to turn it off multiple times because it was not appropriate for my children to hear or listen to. And I think that that speaks to the sort of different um, positions that the Democrats and Republicans took over the past two weeks. But John Walsh, we were hearing a good deal from the Democrats about peaceful protests. And the president obviously brought forward the idea that there were those who were anarchists and those who were looting and so forth and so on. I mean, appealing directly, as both of you have suggested to suburban voters and talked about the suburbs being taken over by mob rule. I mean, he was playing, you know, remember FDR said the only thing to fear is fear itself. The president certainly was playing on fear and fear of suburban women. Well, look, I mean, I think people have a right to be concerned. So it doesn't take a President Trump to go out and talk about your fear for public safety. I mean, you see the the gal on CNN yesterday where she's literally sobbing that her furniture store was burned to the ground in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, you see the videotape that the looters posted themselves of Target laughing and joking that they're running through and getting their goodies. So, you know, it doesn't take a Trump to do that. It's it's happening. Social media allows people to post these things and put them out in real time. So I will tell you that and I do go back to Nixon. I, I, I was in the White House. I was uh, a presidential staffer during that 88 campaign. You're correct, Michael, how far we were behind in the polls. I don't think it was really a Willie Horton issue. It was just people didn't have the confidence that Michael Dukakis would have the leadership and they didn't want to take a risk coming off of, of Ronald Reagan. And they just basically wanted to stay the course. Our message was stay the course. And we, we demonstrated we could have leadership. So I just think this time is fundamentally different from 1988, where the country was socially and where the country was from a you know, unity perspective. Again, I, I go back to 1972, where there were rioting, Vietnam War kind of things, cities burning. And so I think it's more akin to that. And so I President Trump, all he has to do is just repeat the fact that I'm with law enforcement. I'm with the folks who are going to keep your houses from getting burned down. You know, homicides have increased two double in the country in many, many cities uh, over the past six months. And yes, President Trump has been president while these crimes have gone up and this rioting and looting has gone up. But so, too, was Nixon when he ran in 1972, and he was able to steer that messages in a way to get reelected. Well, the president certainly mentioned many times that uh, he was behind police and that police, in fact, he said incorrectly that Joe Biden had uh, advocated defunding of the police. Joe Biden has advocated reform and not has been against defunding. There were a number of those things that came up throughout the week that were simply untrue. But I want to get to the fact with you, Sean, and hear what Marisa has to say about this, too, that uh, let's let's hear first. I was just going to say Jacob Blake was not really mentioned by the president and the president was talking about the importance of police, but he didn't mention also the fact that a young 17 year old vigilante shot a couple of people to death, uh, one of his supporters. He was 17 years old, but he was a strong Trump and police supporter as well. And I'm wondering uh, if we could just hear a cut from earlier on in the convention about the Blake family from Ben Carson. Our hearts go out to the Blake family and the other families who've been impacted by the tragic events in Kenosha. As Jacob's mother has urged the country 
Let's use our hearts, our love, and our intelligence to work together to show the rest of the world how humans are supposed to treat each other. America is great when we behave greatly. Well, Sean, is that enough really, especially when you think about no mention of racial injustice, a young man shot seven times in the back, and the fact that there was nothing on uh, police killings of blacks, browns, or indigenous people, and the vigilante, as I said, killed two people who was a pro-Trump vigilante, nothing of that? Well, a couple things. Number one, I think most Republicans would argue now whether he did it with an empathetic voice or in a way that, that you know, is healing. Uh, some would argue he didn't, but he did talk about that issue and he did say that there are some bad police officers out there, bad apples, and they need to be appropriately punished and prosecuted. He said that. But he spent a lot more time going out and defending the cops. And I will tell you, Michael, so in, in polling and focus group uh, material that I have seen, most people in this country think that when you have a problem, you call the police and the police come and help you. And certainly there are problems with law enforcement officers, with African-Americans and particularly in inner city situations. But for a, a broad perspective of the public, they feel like the cops are their friends and the cops come and help them. And so do they think we should prosecute cops that are doing bad things? Yes. Yeah, should we be more vigorous about it? Yes. But I am telling you that this message um, is is such that for a lot of people in the country, um, harping solely on that issue and not harping on other issues with regards to inner city problems um, is not a winning issue for the Democrats, number one. And number two, with regards to the vigilante person. Hold on, Sean, we have to cut away for a minute. We'll be back, we'll hear more from Marisa, and we're also gonna uh, have uh, Franco Ordonez join us, White House correspondent from NPR, and you, our listeners, of course. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're recapping the Republican National Convention, the continuing racial justice protests and other political news with Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show, and Sean Walsh, GOP consultant with and principal at Wilson Walsh, George Ross, and former advisor to Governor Pete Wilson. And we just heard a cut earlier from Ben Carson, which actually was yesterday, uh, earlier in the convention, I had said it was also delivered uh, Cabinet Secretary Carson's speech was delivered yesterday. Sean was going through a couple of points here, and we went to um, that one-minute break. Sean, you want to make a second point about what we were talking about vis-a-vis racial injustice? Yeah, the one issue also that is now being focus-grouped is with regards to vigilanteism. And a number of folks, particularly on the more conservative side of the aisle, and not just Republicans, believe that if you defund the police and the police can't come and help you, then people are going to try and help themselves. And that leads to vigilanteism. And and that's a disaster, an absolute disaster. It's tragedy waiting to happen. And so if if the police don't enforce the laws and people are going to have their property and businesses burned down, people are going to come out and try and defend their property businesses with tragic results. So, uh, and that's a message that resonates not just with Republicans, but with conservative Democrats. And so this, you know, kind of war on the police. And when the president was calling out the border patrol yesterday, when he was calling out the police and applauding them, that's a a very strong message to people um, with regards to their safety and their security. And it's a powerful political message. And Donald Trump is not an empathetic person. I, I don't know if he has one in his bone in his body of empathy, but his wife tried to do that. His daughter tried to do that. His daughter actually did a terrific speech yesterday. Um, and so 
Trump is playing on and his, and his campaign is going to play on. He's a tough guy for tough times. You need a tough guy to get you through. So that's his message. Whether it's successful at the end of the day or not remains to be seen. But he's throwing the dice. And in 60 days, we'll find out whether that message works or not. Well, what is your main takeaway from the Republican National Convention this week? You can give us a call now, and I invite you to do that. Join us toll free at 866-733-6786. Again, your calls, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email questions to forum at kqed.org. George writes, uh, just read this email. If the event had not been at the White House, there would have been protests, hecklers, and disruptors. President Trump avoided all that and had complete control. It was an absolute home run. Here's Deborah who writes, I know it's part of election coverage, but this horse race stuff makes me crazy. We have an aspiring fascist dictator in the White House degrading the office of the president. If enough Americans don't vote this clown out, we are on the slide to a dictatorship. Again, we certainly welcome you adding your voice. And speaking of adding voices, uh, Franco Ordonez, White House correspondent of NPR, joins us now. And Franco, good to have you. Welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. I guess uh, I wanted to get back to Maurice's take on all this, but I'd like to hear what you have to say. You're going to spend a few minutes with us, and uh, especially about your following Vice President Pence around uh, and what his role has been in this. To some extent, they've really tried, that is, the administration has really tried to change the narrative on the coronavirus. It's almost as if there's some kind of triumph uh, that's gone on there when we're leading the world in terms of deaths at about 22 percent, and there are thousands and thousands of infections every day. Uh, Mike Pence is in some ways uh, serving the president for this different narrative, isn't he? Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, look, I think uh, what we saw with the convention is that Republicans recognized kind of what uh, President Trump's weaknesses were. You guys were talking about the social unrest, Ben Carson talking about race and racism, also uh, the coronavirus. I mean, they over and over and again, Mike Pence, uh, Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump Jr., uh, his daughter, all of them were talking, uh, and so many different people that came to the stage, were talking about the moves that President Trump made on the coronavirus uh, and talking about how his citing his leadership um, and saying that he saved lives. Um, but we know from polling that many, many Americans uh, felt that the president uh, – you know, felt that how this was handled was done poorly. I think the president uh, and the Republicans know this and they want to combat that. Uh, and v Vice President Mike Pence is one of those people um, who has been doing it. He is seen as someone uh, who is trustworthy. He has that folksy Midwestern manner. Um, and he's a good person to bring uh, that message because of kind of the, the trust that he has, particularly with so much of middle America. But when the president says, for example, we had a full shutdown uh, of, uh, of, from China, uh, and he kept talking about it as a China virus, of course, uh, there were 11 exemptions to that. Or when the president talked, for example, about ventilators uh, going to everybody who needed them, that simply was untrue. I mean, you know, we've become accustomed to this president's lying, but those are pretty big, huge, enormous lies that one would presume the pres that uh, that the public could recognize, and yet maybe the fear that he was uh, and others were talking about uh, can override that. That's the big question, I guess, that we're grappling with here in terms of what came out of the convention. 
I think there are a lot of questions uh, that we are grappling with and will continue to grapple with uh, for the next few months. Uh, you know, the president, no question, you know, kind of slow rolled this uh, in the early stages. Yes, he uh, closed the door to China. Um, yes, uh, he made other moves with Europe. But there was there's no doubt that he also uh, slowed on the, the testing. We still have issues with testing and uh, long delays. I mean, that is a major issue that scientists and public health officials repeatedly say is an issue uh, in slowing our response to be able to get back to normalization to get the economy going and to get our kids back in school because we're not we don't have the testing we don't have the we're not able to do the contract tracing that is necessary so these are definitely issues that uh that are going to continue to be an issue and we'll see uh if if the pandemic you know worsens if it stays the same this there's no question this is going to be a political issue uh and the president knows that and i think that's why the messaging on trying to push back was so strong this week Again, Franco Ordonez, White House correspondent for NPR. Uh, we're going to bring some callers in here. First, I want to bring you back here, Marisa Lagos, to respond to a tweet from a listener who says, what about the Republican accusation that chaos and rioting only exists in Democratic cities? This seems to be scaring conservative voters, but is there truth to it? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I think we have to separate a couple things here, which is, you know, first of all, let's be clear. Jacob Blake is in a hospital bed, apparently shackled to a hospital bed with seven bullet wounds and may never walk again. Excuse me, shackled with handcuffs, I think we need to. Yeah. Um, and well, his dad said, I think that his legs are shackled to the bed today. Um, and, you know, there has been destruction and some looting, um, but the vast majority of protests we've seen since George Floyd's death have been peaceful. And I think that, you know, what what Trump and the Republicans are doing is really, um, you know, making a case against what is largely and I'm not saying there haven't been any injuries or um, on all sides, but like th th this idea of property you know, destruction is the same as somebody's life. And I do think that that is something Democrats are going to have to push back on if they, and carefully, because to your point, they do not want to be painted as sort of radicals who don't want, you know, don't, don't want incarceration or don't want police and all of those things. Um, but it is, I think, you know, the message that we've seen. And I, and I do think, um, that there are a lot of echoes of that 1988 campaign and this idea of using fear and, 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 and in some cases, not even, um, dog whistle politics, you know, that couple from St. Louis who is now being charged because they pulled the handguns on the uh, protesters, the Black Lives Matter protesters, really, I, I mean, it was a very nakedly racist speech with, that they gave or remarks that they gave. I mean, they talked about suburbs being overrun by criminals because of, you know, if you change zoning to allow multifamily housing. I mean, that is not very veiled race racism i think i mean we all know what that means they're talking about black and brown people poor people moving in um and so it is going to be it seems a really nasty sort of end of this campaign and one where um it it, it is challenging i mean as for I, I don't know. I, I don't have a spreadsheet of every place where there has been uh, violence. Of course, yes, most of the big cities in America are run by Democrats. Um, I mean, I think Kenosha and, and places like that where we've seen St. Louis, Missouri. I mean, you know, these things maybe have happened in states where you have blue cities, but a red state. Um, I, I don't think it's that simple, um, but I do think that it is certainly a message and, and to Sean's point, one that for some people will be powerful. But, you know, again, 
we are seeing a pandemic. We are seeing people out of work. We are seeing people locked in their homes. Um, you know, I would invite people to come to my city of San Francisco and look outside. It does not look like a <laughs> chaos or rioting is happening here. Um, I think that, you know, there are powerful images that, that the Republicans have definitely used to their advantage and that they will continue to because they think that that is a path. Um, and, and, and I think that the truth is, there's not an interest in a in a sort of debate over these issues around policing. There is um, a real sense, you know, we saw this with Nikki Haley's speech and others, um, the uh, the attorney general. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting which state he was from. Um, I think uh, of of the state where Breonna Taylor was killed. You know, talking about the fact that they do not see America as a racist state and or as a racist nation, and really trying to contrast with what they see as Democrats framing the negatives of America, not talking about American exceptionalism, which I think Biden's campaign is trying to counter with some ads and with some of his language. But I think the question is like, who gets to frame the other side? And I think, you know, the Republicans did a good job of that this week. Let me bring a caller on here and we'll try to get to as many of your calls and emails as we can. We go to Kathy and Eureka is our first caller. Kathy, join us. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I wanted to speak to something that I think your your the the guest who was just speaking was starting to address, which is that the um, the Republicans appear to be saying in in ads and in their speeches, elect us and we will protect you from the negative impacts of a Biden presidency. But all the imagery they're showing and all the incidents they're referring to that they will protect people from the, as consequences of a Biden presidency and a Democratic administration are things that have occurred under the current administration. So basically what they're saying is elect Trump so that we can have four more years of what we've had, which is what we want to protect you from. And, to, you know, that seems to me the message that they're going to have to be, that the Democrats are going to have to be selling is that the Republicans want to protect us from what they've created. Kathy, I thank you for that call. I appreciate hearing from you. I'm going to go right to another caller. Let me go to William in Palo Alto next. William, join us. You're on the air. Uh, thank you, Michael. And uh, I want to thank you for um, including Sean and a speaker representing the, the other viewpoint, if you will, from the typical KQED audience. Um, but, uh, Sean, I have uh, a couple of questions for you. You seem to be uh, in good command of polling data and have talked about how uh, uh, conservatives are in favor of policing and not defunding the police, and you're raising uh, and reiterating this false choice, it seems, uh, uh, between Democrats and Republicans as defunders of police and funders of police. What, what, uh, do you have any polling data as to what proportion of Democrats are in favor of actually defunding the police? Um, and also, you mentioned uh, the that that uh, folks don't want their houses in the suburbs burned. How, do you have any data of how many houses in the suburbs have been uh, damaged at all uh, during Black Lives protests, Black Lives Matters protests uh, to date, or even uh, the threat of that, the McCloskey's uh, fears notwithstanding? Thank William, you. thank you for the thank you for your question, Sean Walsh. Yeah. So a couple things. Number one, politics is about messaging and imaging, and it's pulling together what's going on in the country or in a 
global situation and trying to get it down into very, very narrow lanes. And, and in this campaign, particularly, and in this election and the last election, the people that are going to decide this race literally are in the hundreds of thousands. So you've got to, A, hold the people you had in the past and B, motivate enough people in the future to go your way. Now, with regards to homes burned in the suburbs, I, I don't live in San Francisco. I'm a man of the people. I live in Oakland, California. And you can drive around my city and you can see many businesses boarded up. You had looters that went into the local donut shop, uh, the eyeglass store, the UPS store, the the coffee shop uh, and just looted for looting purposes that some of these st businesses still have wards on their windows. They went out to Walnut Creek. These are images that uh, are very much burned in the memories of people that live there. And so when, with regards to polling, these issues, there's two ways you do things in politics. One is polling, but another way is you bring people in and you do focus groups. It's you put people in a room, you ask them questions, you videotape them, you see what really makes them react. And this kind of looting, uh, which is in many respects separate and apart. I don't think the looters really are the same people that are doing a lot of these, you know, Black Lives Matter marches or demonstrations. But, you know, in Oakland this past week, we had people who tried to burn the courthouse down again. So is it most of the people doing it? No. Is it some of them doing it? Yes. Is it enough to get voters agitated? You bet it is. And it's not just white suburban voters. There's a lot of folks in, in, that are Latinos and even those in African-American communities who don't like the kind of violence that's happening in their communities and they want it to stop. Sean, so let me we'll get just, back uh, uh, to a central point here with Franco Ordonez, who only has a few more minutes with us. And again, Franco Ordonez, White House correspondent with the NPR. Frank, I'm just interested with all this talk about law and order. Steve Bannon, who was the engineer behind uh, the 2016 election of, or the campaign of Donald Trump, is in custody. There are many Trump, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, members of that administration, associates and so forth, who have been convicted or sentenced. Uh, I'm not even including here all those under the Mueller uh, investigation of Russian uh, background. Uh, does it, does there seem to be a disconnect, you think, to American voters uh, on this uh, in terms of law and order and the Trump administration? I mean, it has been uh, a very interesting kind of uh, thing to watch as the number of indictments increased and how the president and the administration has kind of uh, been able to kind of separate themselves from it. Certainly those, uh, you know, those voters, those Americans who feel against President Trump are like, are, you know, their, their feelings are confirmed. Here is another example that this is a bad uh, administration, that it's a corrupt administration, that it's uh, an illegal uh, administration. This is another example um, of, you know, President Trump interacting with people who are breaking the law. This is kind of like the theory that is, is pressed on the, on those who are supportive of the president, um, are, argue like, look, this is, this is different. He was, it was another side. President Trump, uh, said against it. They point to what President Trump said, uh, in July where he raised some questions. So it's kind of like, what side are you on, uh, in, in, in the feeling? But there's no question that there, these are very big allegations. They're very concerning. Uh, and to have that type of closeness to the administration uh, is something that raises a lot of eyebrows across America. Before I let you go, Franco, I'd like to know your thoughts about where the GOP is going to go next after the convention, where the White House is going to go. I think, uh, in fact, you've been following Vice President Pence. He's out on the hustings now, isn't he? 
Yeah, he's heading to uh, Michigan um, as as well um, as he's got a two campaign events today. He was supposed to go to uh, Wisconsin tomorrow, Wisconsin Lutheran College, to give um, the commencement speech. However, the school pulled that back and switched the speakers uh, because of the unrest in Kenosha. Um, so the president, uh, President Trump, is going to be speaking in New Hampshire today. What we are told, uh, what uh, senior administrations told us, told me, um, is that they expect to be on the road more often. They joked that us reporters uh, are going to be traveling a lot more. So certainly we are in the time of coronavirus. It is not going to be like 2016. Um, but I think we're going to see much more, um, much more activity, um, at least from President Trump. Um, and I'll be curious to see what happens on the Biden uh, on the Biden side. He is going to have to get out there. Franco, good to have you with us. Appreciate very much you being with us this morning on Forum. Thank you so much. That's Franco Ordonez, White House correspondent for NPR. And when we return, we'll hear from you, more our listeners. Uh, again, you can join us uh, toll-free at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. Continuing with Marisa Lagos and Sean Walsh, you're listening to Forum on KQED. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about the Republican National Convention, continuing racial justice protests and other political news with Marisa Lagos and Sean Walsh. And we're joined uh, by uh, Ordonez uh, just a moment ago. Um, let me let me bring a couple of callers on here. Let me go first to Michael in San Francisco. Uh, Franco Ordonez, excuse me. Let me go first to Michael in San Francisco. Michael, please join us. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Thanks for an excellent topic again. Um, in response to Ms. Lago's comment about San Francisco not being a scene of chaos, I'm uh, having a little trouble understanding that because downtown Tenderloin Civic Center is quite chaotic, quite dangerous, quite disturbing. So I think law and order is going to be an issue uh, for a lot of working class Asian and Latino people in this election. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you for your take. Let me let that stand and go to Dell in Oakland, who has a response, I think, to what Sean Walsh said about Oakland. Go ahead, Dell. Hi, um, I'm disturbed by people talking about Oakland, and they're not even from Oakland. Oakland supports the riots. Most people from Oakland support it, and it's actually protests. The rioters we know are not even from Oakland. So you have outside agitators coming, disturbing what we need to protest. Oakland has always supported uh, Black Lives Matter. So um, for him to say that Oakland residents, that's not true. That's very false. I have people that own, my friends own businesses down there. They put murals on those, those boards that they're putting up to support Black Lives Matter. So he's, he's wrong by saying that Oakland residents do not support Black Lives Matter. All right, Del, I thank you for your answer. call. I appreciate hearing from you. Let me hear from another caller. John joins us from Corte Madera. John, good morning. Morning. Uh, First of all, I want to, a couple points. I want to uh, say that I, I watched uh, the uh, Republican convention and I thought it was a real exercise in fear mongering and exploiting the racial divide in this country. And uh, secondly, we did not hear anything about 
our uh, Trump's depletion of our NATO alliance. I'm sure they wouldn't want to talk about the fact that he stood up in front of the world and sided with Vladimir Putin over his own intelligence community. And my final point is we had an unsurvivable hurricane crashing into the Gulf Coast of this country. And throughout the whole convention, you heard nothing about global warming. And uh, I think that's an important issue to a lot of Americans, especially people in Iowa who just got decimated by a storm that very well could be a result of global warming. So thank you. All right. I thank you for that call, John. Appreciate hearing from you. And here's Pam, who writes, uh, the Republican strategist, and this is to you, Sean Walsh, warns that people might turn to vigilanteism if people feel there's no law and accountability. The same feeling exists among those protesting police violence. If there were accountability for police violence, there wouldn't even be protests, much less riots. Well, people argue that they have been turning to vigilanteism. That's what this burning of these cities uh, is all about. So, you know, there's an argument that that is indeed the case. Uh, well, there's, uh, excuse uh, me, there was vigilanteism with uh, young Kyle Rittenhouse, too. Uh, I mean, vigilanteism goes both ways, doesn't it? I, I, I concur, Michael. And my point is, and my point is, in this election cycle, and it's being at least demonstrated in focus groups, is that when society loses control of its public safety component, then people don't feel safe and they go out and do things that are very harmful to other people. So you need to let the process, the law enforcement, both from a police and from a prosecutorial perspective, do their thing. And because it seems to be out of control and, you know, people say, well, Donald Trump is the president. So why is he not getting the blame? Well, Donald Trump and the Republicans are saying it's these liberal policies within these Democratic controlled cities that is having this happen. You can say it's a he said or a she said. Um, you know, I'm not debating the, the merits per se, uh, ethical merits of it. I'm just telling you it's a powerful political tool that can be used effectively and get Donald Trump reelected. And as I said, I go back to the Nixon era. That's, in my view, the cleanest comparison. And it worked for Dick Nixon. Now, maybe it works for, for Donald Trump. I don't know. One other issue that I think is important to know, prior to these, these riots and the burning and the looting, the most recent rounds, I think the Democrats had a pretty good strategy. They were saying, you know, we're, they were playing to Republican suburban women uh, and conservative Democrat women by saying, aren't you just tired of Donald Trump? Aren't you tired of this stuff? Aren't you tired of the vulgarity and the whole nine yards? And I do think that was their strategy. It was wearing down Republicans. Yeah, I just want all this stuff to go away. But I think with the latest rounds of, of violence, that's hardened people, number one. And number two, Joe Biden. There was a reason why Donald Trump gave the second longest um, you know, acceptance speech in history. He stood up there for 70 minutes and he was trying to contrast that he's vigorous. He has energy. You may not like him, but he's going to go out there and do what he has to do. And, you know, Joe Biden, I mean, the joke this morning is they call him laying low Joe. I mean, he's not on the campaign trail today. He said yesterday that he'll go out after Labor Day. I think there's a real contrast, too, about whether Biden's going to have the, the vigorousness to go out and do this. And Nancy Pelosi comes out yesterday and says Joe Biden shouldn't debate Donald Trump. You know, he's a liar. He shouldn't give him the dignity. But that sends another signal that that Biden doesn't have the vigor necessary to go out and campaign for the rest of the season and be your president. Those are and messages I'm glad you that brought Republicans that up, Sean. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to go to Marisa about that and talk about it in terms of uh, 
Well, Nancy Pelosi giving that advice, I want to bring in some of the California politicians and their role in this convention. I don't know if I can include Kimberly Guilfoyle, the former first lady of uh, San Francisco, who really excoriated California for all its uh, heroin needles and uh, dirt and homelessness and so forth. But I'm wondering, Marisa, about your thoughts uh, about Kevin McCarthy. But first, let's talk about Nancy Pelosi's remark that uh, Sean Walsh just alluded to, that there shouldn't be uh, any response uh, to that, that Joe Biden simply, uh, Vice President Biden simply shouldn't be involved in the debate. Uh, and quickly, Vice President Biden said that that would not be his position. Um, but to some extent, it may have, well, let, let's get your take on it, Marisa. I think that might just be Nancy Pelosi trolling Trump a little bit. I mean, obviously, the debates are going to happen. I don't think that there's a very good reason for Biden to not uh, engage in that. I, I think Pelosi is a very calculated politician. And what, and, you know, she obviously, if she wanted to tell Joe Biden that she could do it not at a press conference, right? She could just call him up and say that. So I think that that was maybe a strategic thing. I, I don't put a huge amount of importance on it. I do want to talk about one thing, you know, Sean's been talking a lot about the small sort of group of voters who will likely decide this election. And I absolutely agree. And I, I do think that from a strategic standpoint, it's interesting what we saw this week, which was a really, I think, naked attempt at, at firing up the base and maybe bringing in people who have some of the fear we've been talking about, but not, and, and this has been true throughout the presidency and the first campaign, but not to reach out, right? I mean, Biden really tried to give, I think, what was viewed as a presidential address, not as much of a political address. He wanted to present himself as somebody who would represent in the entirety of America. That was very different from what Trump did. And I think one place as a Californian, I saw this again and again, was we talked a lot about the terrible storms in Iowa. We, of course, talked about Hurricane Laura, which we should. I can't recall a single mention, maybe there was one or two, but of the California wildfires. And I think that we have seen this again and again, where there is sort of this sense that blue America isn't part of America um, for this administration in the same way. Now, I want to say that in their actions, that has not been the case. We have gotten the FEMA help in California that the governor asked for. There has been sort of assistance. But from the way it's framed, I think it's really interesting. And it tells you a lot about what the president think, you know, who the president wants to talk to and who he thinks he can probably win over. Speaking of uh, California, let's hear a cut, uh, cut nine, Danny, from last night from McCarthy. Four years ago, President Trump promised to be your voice. He kept that promise, but there's still so much more to do. The choice before you could not be clearer. Forward in freedom or backward in socialism? Well, there it is again from... Uh... The minority leader and certainly a Republican, a very prominent Republican here in California. How much uh, does this affect the president, uh, particularly in his attitude toward this blue state, do you think, Marisa? Um, I think it's, you know, it's fascinating. I think McCarthy has really um, been again and again i mean he actually that was let's let me start by saying this that speech was actually a lot kinder to california than a lot of the things that he has been saying both this week and in, in, in other venues and just generally um i think it's an interesting strategy for, you know I, I obviously there's only a handful of republicans from california in congress now we have wide swaths that are only represented by democrats um, but mccarthy has definitely made the political calculation that it's more important for him to be close 
close to Trump and to sort of throw that red meat than it is uh, to defend his home state. Although, again, I do think that when the rubber meets the road around disaster assistance and other things that we have not seen the same sort of partisan rhetoric actually play out um, in terms of policy. What about Kevin McCarthy's speech? You have a take on it, Sean? Sean Walsh? Uh, look, they're playing to... Um, well, that's, that's a little bit of a message, too. So this seldom gets reported, but you have a civil war going on within the Democratic <laughs> Party itself. So you've got the li- very liberal progressive wing fighting with the, I think, the you know Joe Biden wing, the more moderate wing. And you're seeing this being played out in the primary races across the country. I mean, the, the number one ranking Democrat House member, Mr. Engel, just lost in a primary race in New York. Tlaib in Minnesota had a very close primary race. Um, or not to leave in, in Michigan. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, fighting there. And if you play that socialism card, there's a lot of liberal Democrats who say, hell yeah, I'm socialist. Hell yeah, that should be our, or heck yeah, that should be the way we go there. So it's not just designed to, you know, be fear for Republicans. It's also designed to agitate with the Democrats. And again, people are appalled that, you know, I'm shocked there's politics going on here. Here's your winnings. Uh, but and this is the season we're in and these races are so tight. And with regards to California, I mean, we had a special election where Mr. Garcia, uh, a Republican, um, former uh, F-14 pilot and defense guy, actually won in a suburb of L.A. So Republicans are actually feeling pretty good that we may actually potentially pick up a few seats, particularly down in Orange County that we lost in the last election cycle based on the angst of the the public now. So uh, I think McCarthy's in a good place where he needs to be for California. And Marissa's right. We get we've gotten everything we've needed. Uh, Gavin Newsom and Donald Trump uh, are very, very close from a policy perspective. He asks Trump, he gets from Trump, he doesn't dump on Trump. So, you know, I, I, I'm not worried at all about McCarthy's standing in California politics. He also didn't respond uh, negatively necessarily to his former wife uh, when asked about the comments that she made. But uh, the fires were raging in California. They're still raging. And as a caller pointed out earlier, there was no mention of climate change. And uh, that's of concern to people. I also wanted to bring up the fact that uh, despite the fact that there was such constant criticism of Obamacare, of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, we still don't have a health plan from the Republicans. Maybe we can take that up, time permitting. Uh, but really, I want to get some callers in here. Let me get Lewis on from Saratoga. Lewis, good morning. Good morning. I think one thing that we, especially in the past couple weeks or months, have forgotten is how prevalent coronavirus and COVID is, uh, no matter how much looting and I guess the real message I want to make is, why are these businesses boarded up? Why are they closed? Why are people not at at work right now? It's because of the failure of the federal government, the failure of Trump, the failure of his administration, and it's not riots and looting that is causing people to be upset. Uh, Lewis, I will let your comments stand for now and go to another caller. Alina joins us from Oakland. Alina, welcome. You're on the air. Hi. um, I just wanted to echo what the previous caller said. I'm a black listener of KQED. I listen every morning. I'm actually on my way to work now. You can hear I'm panting. I was working in San Rafael. It's super smoky out here. I have a question for Sean Walsh. I've been listening and frankly shaking as I'm listening to this. I feel like language is so important and the rhetoric that I'm hearing is so disappointing. Marisa just mentioned a couple minutes ago that Jacob Lake is shackled to a hospital bed after he was shot seven times by police. 
There are three people dead or gravely injured after a 17-year-old committed felony action before, after, and during his murderous rampage. And Sean Walsh, who is clearly not from Oakland, clearly not indigenous, has the gall to come on air and talk as if he says he's a man of the people and say that we're concerned in Oakland? No, we're not. This is the birthplace of the Black Panthers. We are not concerned about the looters. We are, the looters are white people who came to this country and have looted so much more from us, from indigenous people, from Latinos. You have looted more than any of us could ever loot. And it is embarrassing to me as a Bay Area resident to hear someone come on. I can't believe that we're wasting air on Sean Walsh's opinion. Can we get a black or Latinx or indigenous guest to talk about this? I understand that he's talking about polling. But for some of us, this is our lives. And how do you talk about Let me thank you for the call. I want to get a response from Sean Walsh. I appreciate hearing from you. Sean? I am an Oakland resident. Uh, You know, I communicate with Oakland residents. They're not happy. There has been looting throughout Oakland. Um, It is what it is. And it, it makes people upset. And I am telling you as a person who's been, worked in two White Houses, two governor's offices, been involved in, numerous congressional and Senate campaigns, both in the state and out of the state. These are very powerful images that move voters. And rarely do you get these types of images that can be that impactful, particularly for a a president who was not overly popular going into this cycle. So, you know, people may not like what I have to say, but it's based on 30 plus years of professional career inside of politics and inside of government. So um, it is what it is. I want to go to a listener tweet here. I thank Alina for her call. Uh, This is a listener who writes, how is the Trump uh, House, excuse me, uh, when I worked at the White House, this listener says, uh, and other federal agencies, you weren't allowed to even make an election, election related phone call in a federal space. Will there be any legal repercussions for having a convention at the White House and having elected officials making campaign speeches? And I think this brings in, of course, Mike Pompeo's speech from Jerusalem, which uh, has received a great deal of criticism because he is a secretary of state. And it was a kind of foreign affairs political speech on behalf of the president uh, and celebrating the deal that was made between Israel and uh, the United Arab Emirates. Uh, but legal, legal repercussions, Melissa, uh, Marissa Lagos? I'm sorry, legal repercussions for the well, Hatch Act? This is what the listener, for yeah. the Hatch Act specifically, yeah. The, yeah, it seems unlikely that the president himself will face any legal repercussions, although um, I guess we could leave the door open for any any sort of p- attempt at prosecuting him after he leaves office. I think the bigger risk is likely for other federal employees, the acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf, for example, um, for the you know those videos that the RNC claims were White House videos that they just reappropriated but had been shot, you know, really on the same day, and, and I think um, are unusuals, right? The the swearing in ceremony. So I think it's going to depend. I mean, the inspector general um, is obviously and, and the folks who would be responsible for looking at these and the federal government are largely appointed by Trump. And I, and I highly doubt that we'll see, say, the attorney general uh, investigate this president. But um, there could be actually civil cases, I think, against um, some of the other federal employees brought by outside groups. So I don't think this conversation's over. And it was certainly, um, you know, pretty, uh, I think, depending on where you sit, jarring or striking um, the way that the White House was used, not just last night, but, you know, throughout the week. We'll let that be the final word. Marisa Lagos, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to have you. 
Thanks, Michael. It's Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. And Sean Walsh, good to have you with us. Thank you for joining us this hour. Thanks, Michael. Sean Walsh is a Republican political consultant, Principal Wilson Walsh, George Ross. And we spoke earlier with Franco Ordonez, White House correspondent for NPR. Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Larberg, Ariana Prell, Blanca Torres, and Grace Wan, and Raquel Maria Dillon. Our senior editor is Dan Zoll. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. Intern is Jameson Weiss. Executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Thank you for being a part of this morning's Forum program. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum with Mina Kim. And for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.